I'm excited to continue our series this morning on Chase the Lion as we look at our fears, uh, but also the dreams that God is putting in our hearts and calling us towards. Uh, I'm gonna, before I forget, I'm going to invite the ushers forward, and if you'd like a Bible, um, just put up your hand. They would love to give you one. If you don't own one, you can take it home. It's our gift to you. In the summer of 1896, there was a 25-year-old named Orville Wright, and he contract, contracted typhoid fever. Uh, so for several days, he was in a near-death delirium, and it would be an entire month before he could sit up in bed and several more weeks before he could even get out of bed. But this was actually the best thing that ever happened to him. Because while he was in bed, Orville's brother, Wilbur, had taken intense interest in human flight. And with Orville bedridden, he had a captive audience. So Wilbur would read out loud to his brother, and that's how the Wright brothers crossed paths with their 500-pound lion. You see, their dad uh, was a, had quite the library for the, 19th, uh, for the 19th century, and he had a curiosity about flight, and he had a particular fascination with the flight of birds, which explains why he had this title on his bookshelf, Animal Mechanism, A Treatise on Terrestrial and Aerial Locomotion. So by the time Wilbur finished reading that book, he had actually discovered his destiny. The father's fascination had become this brother's obsession. And on May 30th, 1899, Wilbur wrote the most significant letter of his life given the chain reaction that this letter set in motion. He addressed a letter to the Smithsonian Institute informing them that he had begun a systematic study of human flight. He asked for everything written on the subject, which wasn't much, but the book L'Empire de l'Air, how's my French, uh, by French farmer, poet, and student of flight Louis-Pierre Moulard. I made it to like grade six French, okay, which is like where French begins. Um, and there was, a, there was a quote in this book that read this, that he was like a prophet crying in the wilderness, exhorting the world to repent of its unbelief in the possibility of human flight. Exhorting the world to repent of its unbelief in the possibility of human flight. This series, Chase the Lion, is really about repentance. What do we need to repent of? What do you need to repent of? What impossibility, what perceived impossibility do you need to repent of? What fears have we let dictate our decisions in our lives instead of asking what's, what's the dream that God's placed in our hearts that we need to go after? I don't know if you're into movies. I'm not much of a movie buff, but some of my favorite movies are those movies that have, you know, they, they kind of have this thick plot line, and then there's like this twist at the end that makes you rethink everything that happened in that movie. Does anybody like those kind of movies? Okay. Leonardo DiCaprio's in a lot of those type of movies. Um, and one of the movies that he was in that was like that was the movie Inception. Anybody like Inception? Okay, I got a few. Okay. So... If you haven't seen Inception, I'm not going to try too hard to explain it to you because even after I've watched it a couple of times, I still don't understand it. But uh, this is the basic premise that extractors infiltrate the subconscious mind of their targets and extricate information while their targets are in a dream state. You with me? No. Um, 
So they basically identify someone and get them in a dream state and then go into their minds to, the, to get information out of them. So in one plot-changing scene, Dominic Cobb, who's played by Leonardo DiCaprio, goes beyond the art of extraction. He attempts the near-impossible task of inception, which is planting an idea in somebody's mind. So Cobb says to his partner in crime, Arthur, who is played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, <laughs> he says, we have to plant this idea deep into the subconscious. Arthur asks, how deep? To which Cobb responds, three levels deep. To which Arthur asks, and this is the question that frames the whole movie, a dream within a dream within a dream? Is that even possible? And Inception maybe popularized this phrase, a dream within a dream, but it was actually uh, first penned by Edgar Allan Poe in a poem titled, A Dream Within a Dream. And the last stanza of that poem poses this question, is all that we see or seem but a dream within a dream? And I believe that the answer is yes. I believe that God, in the beginning, had a dream of creation. And so he goes about creating the world. And on the sixth day, God creates dreamers, men and women, you and me. He actually created us to dream. Imagination is God's gift back to you. Our imagination is God's gift to you, and a dream is our gift back to God. Your greatest legacy is your dreaming. And in fact, it's not just your dreaming, but it's the dreams it's the legacy, it's the dreams that your dream inspires. It's the dreamers that your dream will inspire. And last week we looked at Benaiah, and he chased a lion into a pit on a snowy day. You know, where we would have seen a 500-pound problem, Benaiah saw a 500-pound opportunity. And God's people, you and I, we were actually intended to not see problems but opportunities. We were intended to be creators. We were intended to be dreamers. And I think our world needs more dreamers, more innovators, less commentators. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to 2 Samuel 23, verse 8. And so in 2 Samuel 23, we read all these uh, we read about David's mighty men, his 30 kind of mightiest men, and they were all Benaiah type of guys, guys that chased lions, guys that did what looked like impossible things, but they were willing to risk, they were willing to dream. And we come to uh, David's, uh, the leader of his mighty men, and his name is Josheb Beshebeth. Can everybody say Josheb Beshebeth? I just heard a lot of shushing. Second um, Samuel 23 verse 8 says this. These are the names of David's mighty warriors. Josheb, Beshebeth, a Tachamanite, was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. He raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. 800 to 1 odds. And there becomes a moment for everybody where you have to choose whether to chase the line, whether to fight, or whether to flight. And we talked about the last week. Is your tendency to fight or to flight? Josheb, we'll just call him Joe. That's 
seems so much easier. I'm sure David called him Joe. He's against an army of 800 men, 801 odds, and we would look at that and we say, the odds are not in your favor. The, the, the line of the Hunger Games, was it? May the odds be forever in your favor. What's that? Ever in your favor. Oh, sorry. Sorry to mess up the Hunger Games. Uh, may the odds be ever in your favor. But not so with God. In fact, in the Bible we see may the odds never be in your favor. Because when the odds are stacked against you, it actually gives the greatest potential for God to do a miracle. When the odds are stacked against you, God gets to show up in a powerful way that we could say that must have been God because they couldn't have done that on their own strength. Impossible odds set the stage for God's greatest miracles. God loves long shots. From the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, you see against all odds, God does some incredible things. So Joe, 800 to 1 odds. And it's okay because God loves long shots. You know, isn't that why God dwindled down Gideon's 10,000-person army? He took away 9,700 of them. Isn't that why when Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego were going to be thrown into the fiery furnace, the fiery furnace was, was put seven times hotter than usual? Isn't that why when Jesus went to raise Lazarus from the dead, Jesus seemed like he waited like four days. Lazarus was four days dead before he made sure he was real dead. Real, real dead. Because when the odds are stacked against you, it actually gives an opportunity for a miracle. When things happen beyond our logic, our resources, our ability, God gets the glory and we get to share in his story. I want to focus on one phrase in this, this verse, 2 Samuel 23, verse 8. And it's at the very end. And it's the two words, one encounter. Say that with me. One encounter. I believe that every person in this room this morning is one encounter away from a totally different life. You're one decision away from a different life. You're one risk away from a new reality. You're one decision away from a new destiny. And I hope in this series, we catch God's dreams for our lives and, and we will stop living as if the purpose of life is to arrive safely at death. You were created for more than that. We were created for more than that. I'm going to invite some friends to stage this morning who are going to help me tell, us, tell a bit of a story for you. Um, so, Andrew Brown, if you're here... Come on down. Andrew Brown, come on down. You guys can give Andrew a hand. Uh, Jake Fluker. Stu McAllister. Stu's joining us all the way from El Salvador. Give him a, you got to give Stu a big hand. He came from El Salvador. Is, did Dave Hoagie come this morning? Dave Hoagie? Okay, we're, we're keeping track. Someone text Dave Hoagie and let him know. I noticed you weren't at church today. Um, no, he said he might not. He not, might not make it. Um, are Noe and Hazel here this morning? Did I see them in the back? Can I invite you guys up on stage too? Noe and Hazel, come on down. They don't even know what's going on, and that's okay. Just, just come on down. Um, I want to tell a little bit of a story. 
that just helps kind of helps us see that we, we don't actually understand the ripple effects of the decisions that we make. Dreams within a dream within a dream. Anyway, thanks for being a good sport, buddy. <laughs> Come on down, you can join Stu there in the end. So this is my, my good friend, Andrew. And in 2004, uh, Andrew had what I'm going to call an inciting incident, and I'll explain what that means in a second. Uh, I'll explain it right now. An inciting incident is, is a doorway that you walk through that you can't return. Okay, it kind of changes something. As you walk through it, there's no return at that point. And, and Andrew had a bit of an inciting incident, and some inciting incidents happen to you and some you make happen. Uh, so in 2004, uh, before we kind of get to the El Salvador connection, uh, tell us what Pre, what, what happened before that decision? Significant moment in your, you and your family. Uh, I was in my first year of Bible school at Rocky Mountain Bible College, and they had a El Salvador missions trip because the EMCC denomination was connected with them, and so their missions board shared an office with the school, and they said, we heard about this thing, place in El Salvador, we'd like to put a team together and go check it out. So I signed up. Awesome. And so uh, how much was tuition that year for you? I can't remember, but it was a private school, no government funding. So I think it was like double what U of C was per class. Okay. And do you remember how much the trip was? No, but it was multiple thousands. Okay. And how much income did you have at that moment in your life? Uh, no income I don't think. Other than the Ford Falcon. Oh, yeah, my Falcon. I had a, <laughs> I restored a 1964 Ford Falcon in high school in auto body, and I sold it to help pay for tuition for Bible school that year. Okay. And so right before the trip happened, um, tell us a little bit about your brother Aaron and what had happened with your family. Yeah, that, that summer in July, my older brother Aaron passed away uh, suddenly, and so things were in my life were broken to say the least so i had no idea what i was doing i just walked into bible college like a zombie <laughs> okay so you're a young adult you're in post-traumatic stress yeah yeah you, you don't have any money and this opportunity to go to el salvador uh, shows up before you and so why did you choose to take that step chase that line so to speak well, I remember my dad talking with my dad about it, and he was cautiously supportive. I remember my dad being like, that's a lot of money, Andrew. I'm like, I know. But in my delusion, I just decided, I'm just going to try and go. All right. So you went, and uh, can you tell us a little bit about the site that you went to? Don't get to what happened to that site yet, but just explain the site that you okay. went to. Well, they heard about this town or village called Las Brisas, which is in kind of off the beaten path. And they heard that it was like a, a rock quarry that they opened up the land for rejects, rejected people, people that couldn't pay, people that were outcasts. And they just kind of set up like a little shanty town there. And it was a big, it, it had a huge need. So we were going to go check it out. Okay. Awesome. So you went, you did the mission trip, 
uh, you got back and it was a bit of an inciting incident because something had changed in your heart and, uh, and tell us who you went to talk to when you came back. Yeah, when I got back, it wrecked me. I mean, I had been to Mexico four times, so I had seen poverty, but El Salvador just, it did something different. And at that time, uh, when I got back, I was still in Bible school, but I went and talked to my family. I wasn't working for Trent yet. Okay. So when did you talk to Trent? I went a second year. So the next year I went again, except I was like the, the student leader. And then after that second year, I left Bible school and started working for old man Burstad. And while I was working for him, I told him how much it had changed me. Okay. So you got to come. And then so you went on another trip uh, with, uh, with Trent Burstad, who wasn't able to be here this morning. Um, he's away with his wife. Um, and, uh, and Tyson Pahal. So it was the three of you guys that went. I, I think yeah. so. Okay. And then you come back. And I'm going to pass the mic down the line. So Trent comes back. And Trent goes to this guy. What did Trent tell you, Jake? Um, he said, you're going next year when we go. Okay. You know, we all have great friends that, uh, that speak into our lives. And uh, he said, I went. Yeah. There you go. And so the first group of SunWest guys uh, went, went down to El Salvador. And uh, you started building in Las Parisas. Okay, describe a little bit how many, how many trips that you guys did to that same area. Um, I can't exactly recall, but we've probably done four separate trips there, at least some, somewhere around there, probably. Um, we've become much more proficient since then, but um, we used to really struggle and toil at, at building a home, so we were, we were pretty proud of ourselves that <laughs> we would do four in one week. Um, and uh, so there's about 122 houses, I believe, there now. And uh, it's basically the entire village is, is built. So we actually got on Google Maps. So I'm going to ask Brian to, to sh shoot up on the screen there. And there's El Salvador. And we're going to zoom into all the way down into Las Parisas. <laughs> and so... So you look at that, see, see all those little white squares there? Those are all uh, tin, tin roofs that SunWest played a part in building, uh, but Shelter, which we'll get to in a second, um, built all, I think it's 122 families there. Yeah. Uh, from a gravel pit to a village. Uh, so that's very cool. So Jake, um, tell us a little, just... Briefly, what is, uh, you know, we know that you've gone to Mexico or to El Salvador multiple times since then. Um, what has this costed you to actually continue to invest? I don't really like to think of it that way, but um, <laughs> I, a lot of money, obviously. I mean, it's a big financial commitment. We, um, we support ourselves and... Uh, and go down. Um, you know, I have a young family with a super gracious wife. 
<laughs> who uh, lets me go and spend uh, three or more weeks there a year. Um, and I don't know, I got a couple businesses and it's a lot of work the week before I leave and it's a lot of work the week after I leave. Um, kind of just happens, but uh, yeah. you know, God's faithful in that too. And um, everything's still standing and the guys haven't burnt anything to the ground while I was gone. So uh, yeah, it's, uh, so there's, there's that, that aspect, I guess. And um, there's a lot of time and energy that goes into, um, into this, this thing. It, it doesn't just happen. Yeah. And, uh, and it's not just all my time and energy. Uh, you know, Stu and his family put in a lot of energy as well. But, yeah. yeah. So we'll get to that in one sec. So just imagine right here in the story, you know, you got Trent and you got Jake, and then, uh, you know, Dave Hoagie's in here somewhere as well. Um, and how did Dave Hoagie and Stepper Holmes get involved in this story? I am Dave Hoagie. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't a very good impression. Dave's not here, so it doesn't matter. Um, so... How Dave and Stepper got connected with the whole thing is Trent and I used to work with a guy, Gordy, and we used to frame with Gord, and we, 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 we leaned on Gord a lot to uh, come on the trip with us, and he was looking for every excuse not to come on the trip, I think, and uh, money being the primary one. And uh, Harry and Eva Stepper, the, the owners of Stepper Homes, were so gracious to say, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll pay for you to go under one condition, that you... Um, that you give a presentation to our office staff upon your return, kind of citing your experience in the week that you were gone. And uh, Gordy not being one for that sort of thing at all, that was quite a daunting thing, but uh, I think Trent and I were probably more convincing, and uh, so he, he went for it. And uh, really upon his return, um, people within Stepper staff started asking, well, why, why can't we do something like this, like we would like to do this. And they were saying, well, we would give up our Christmas party that they, you know, they go away for a weekend. And, uh, and so Trent then had the opportunity to present to Stepper's board, um, you know, what, what a week would look like with Stepper Homes going and, and what the work was that we were doing there. And Stepper said, well, respectfully, we got a lot of people, different organizations we got to hear out. You know, it's going to be a couple weeks. Um, an hour later, they phoned, <laughs> phoned Trent and said, we're in. <laughs> so uh, sorry to all those other organizations, but uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's good. So Stepper Home takes, uh, takes, takes a group every year, two, two groups or? Yeah, they've taken two, as many as three at times. So they open it up to um, both office staff and uh, trade partners. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll just really quickly, they do a golf tournament to help raise funds every year. And so we just did that golf tournament this last Monday. I suck as usual at golf, but um, I don't have to pay because I get invited. <laughs> but uh, it's really interesting to see a captive audience that has no idea they're they're supporting the work that we're doing there, but really don't don't understand or you know they're unchurched people, lots of them, and um, we have a really great opportunity to um, uh, to share something truly meaningful, more than just just a good work, and uh, 
and the comment and the feedback from a number of people. Um, I just spoke with a guy on Wednesday. He had no idea he was at the golf tournament. He was invited by somebody else and said, uh, clearly there is something different going on at Stepper Homes beyond building houses. Hmm. And yeah, I think that that yeah. speaks volumes. So you got these people at Stepper Homes that w would probably never darken the door of a church that are going, being the hands and feet of Jesus. Uh, and hearing about the good news of Jesus, and, and, and it's, it's quite an incredible thing. And uh, if you want more on that story, we actually have Dave Hoagie shared the whole story uh, this past year on one of the Sunday mornings, and uh, we can get you the, the link to that as well. Uh, so I'm going to say thanks to Jake. Jake actually has to run to McKenzie because he's sharing there as well this morning. So thanks. I want to hear the end of it. But... Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, it's up to you. Just it's between you and Drew. <clears throat> And so this is Stu, and, and so Trent and Carrie Lynn and Stu and Carrie moved to El Salvador. How many years ago, Stu? In 2011. 2011. And Stu and Carrie have been in El Salvador since then. Um, and uh, I know that there's probably lots that Stu could report on, but the one question I want to ask Stu um, is, what's the next 500-pound lion for you guys? What's the, what's the next thing, the dream that God's putting on your heart for El Salvador? Well, as, as Andrew talks about, we, we came out of the EMCC church, and it was World Partners at that time, and about uh, four or five years ago, uh, we became our own organization. It's all the same people, but we just defined it as something, and it's called Shelter. And so you hear that the team's going to work with Shelter. Um, a couple years ago, as an organization, we came up with our vision and our, and our mission, what we felt God was calling us to do in El Salvador. And it's not just uh, building a house here and there. And uh, our vision is actually to be a, a catalyst for positive transformation in every village of El Salvador. We're working right now in about 130 Las Brisas. Wow. And there's probably about 12,000 villages in El Salvador. So that's much bigger than, than I, than a team can do. That's something that only God can do. And so we're, we're excited to be part of that. And alongside of that, we have, we have a mission statement that says that we will, sh we will spread the gospel through the building of a home for every Salvadorian that needs one. And so our mission is, is twofold, right? It's not just building a house. It's, it's, it's sharing the, the good news of Jesus as well, along with each house that we build. So, um, so that's our lion. It's huge. Yeah. It's, it's a very big lion. But, but we can start to see God's putting some footsteps in front of us to follow. And, yeah. Uh, there's just some amazing things happening. In yeah, that's really neat. Thanks, Stu, for coming all the way just to be here. Um, appreciate that. <clears throat> okay, so this is uh, Noe and Hazel, and uh, they didn't know I was going to call them on stage, so I, I just, uh, sorry about that, guys. But, but I was wondering, uh, from someone who's lived in a shelter home uh, and whose father and brother currently... Yeah, my sister. Your sister lived in a shelter home... Yeah. Can, can you tell us what it, I mean, we talk about like, you know, these mass numbers and what's going on in El Salvador, but, but at the end of the day, it's changing someone's world and changing someone's story. Can you tell us what it means for your family uh, to actually get a home? What, what does that mean for you? Uh, para, para mí, como familia, el tener una casa de shelter fue una tremenda bendición que comenzó en el 2011, cuando yo empecé a trabajar. In 2011, for me, it was a great blessing for my family to be able to receive a shelter home. Todo inició ahí cuando le construyeron la casa a mi familia, a mi papá. It all began when the uh, shelter built a home for my father. Y se me dio la oportunidad de empezar a trabajar como voluntario con ellos. 
And I began to work as a, vol uh, a volunteer for shelter, building other homes. Luego, en ese mismo tiempo fue en el año cuando Stuart y Trent llegaron a El Salvador. And that same year, Stuart and Trent came to El Salvador and started working. Y ahí empezó todo cuando empecé a trabajar y, y mi vida cambió completamente. El solo hecho de mírame dónde estoy ahora, eso significa que Dios tenía un plan y todo ese plan empezó en ese año, en ese día cuando empecé a trabajar. And from that moment, God started to work in our lives and, and, and look where I am today. And, and I, I can just see, looking back, that this was God's plan for my life. Awesome. De esa forma siento que en mi vida personal, en nuestra vida personal como familia, uh, Shelter cambió en nuestras vidas y Sunwest como parte de, de Shelter. Uh, siento que tomaron un, un gran porcentaje de todo ese cambio que en nuestra vida ha llegado. And I would say that, that, that you can look at the life of my, myself and my wife and see that Shelter has changed our lives. And I would say that Sun West has been a big part of, of that change in our lives as well. De esa forma me siento altamente agradecido con Dios primeramente y luego con Sun West y Shelter por la oportunidad que me dieron de trabajar en aquel momento y ahora por la bendición de saber dónde estoy y me siento altamente bendecido por tener tantos amigos que conozco y amigos que por conocer tal vez que todavía no nos hemos presentado. And I just want to give thanks to, to Shelter and to SunWest and, and for, for being part of my journey to this point in time. And I thank you for all the friendships that I've made with, with many people here, uh, with many people across the country over the years. De esa forma siento que fue un cambio para nuestra vida y así de esa misma forma en otros ámbitos tal vez hay muchos cambios en las otras familias en El Salvador que han recibido que ya van cerca de 3.000 familias que han recibido una casa y no tal vez de la misma forma como cambió mi vida el shelter de otra forma tal vez pero sí son grandes los cambios que en El Salvador se están llevando a cabo por medio del shelter and I just want to say that, that it's not just me there's there's thousands close to 3,000 families now that have been changed by, by shelter and, and the work that's happening in El Salvador and, and I just think that as a as a country we're starting to experience that change as well Awesome. Así que gracias a Dios primeramente y gracias a Shelter y a Sun West por abrirnos las puertas en este lugar. So thanks to God and thanks to Shelter, thanks to Sun West for, for being part of that and open the doors for, uh, for us here. Yeah. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Appreciate that. That's awesome. What a cool story, hey? So I know we can listen to the story and be like, man, that's a, that story is amazing. And uh, it is amazing. And, and my point that I wanted to make this morning is not just that, hey, look at what's happening in El Salvador. The main point I want to make is that the ripple effect of this story started with a 19-year-old kid who was in debt struggling from post-traumatic stress, who decided to take a risk because he felt like God was calling him to go to El Salvador. And Andrew Brown had no idea that his decision was going to have this ripple effect. What 500-pound dream vision has God put before you? And don't conclude what the results of that are going to be because our job is actually just be obedient to what God is asking us to do. We don't get to know the results before we get into the pit with a lion on a snowy day. We don't know the results when we pick up a spear to fight 800 men in an army. 
But our role is actually just to be obedient to ask God, you know, what's the dream you're putting on our heart? And here's, the, here's a cr- another crazy thing is that, is that this ripple effect of this dream didn't even start with Andrew Brown. I mean, it started, uh, you know, Andrew Brown was working or was going to school at Rocky Mountain where the guy from what's now Shelter was out of the office. So there was a dream that predates him. Andrew Brown was a part of uh, Sun West. Let me strip the layers back on that story just for a moment. I phoned, uh, I phoned Gwen Reimer this week. Uh, William Gwen Reimer founded SunWest uh, 21 years ago. 22 years ago. And I said, tell, tell, tell me about the beginning, you know, when this happened. And I'm just going gonna, gonna to read part of what she wrote me here. It says, in early fall 1993, we started dreaming and discerning in a community what kind of ministry context was next for us. Willie was in his final year of his master's program in at MBBS, Mennonite Biblical, uh, Mennonite Brethren Biblical Seminary in Fresno, California. In conversations with other students, he found out that the ABMB conference, our provincial conference, had a vision to plant a church in Calgary. They had written up a profile of the kind of church they wanted to see, to see started in the Southeast, a church that would see unchurched people meet the transforming person of Jesus Christ in a place where people would meet Jesus and walk in freedom and hope and healing. We read it and resonated with us. Willie immediately inquired about it and we're told, thanks, but we're looking for someone with experience in church planning. The profile stayed in the back of our minds throughout the fall. In December, Willie inquired again about the church plant and if they'd found someone. They still said no to us. They were still hoping to find someone with experience. In the midst of these rejections, we still sensed very strongly that we would be church planting in Calgary. In February 1994, We flew to Halifax to discern whether God was calling us to plant a church there. After a week on the ground, we discerned it was not the right place for us. Upon returning to Fresno, Willie inquired a third time about the church plant in Calgary, and they still said no. By this time, most of our fellow students were being placed in ministry positions, and we still didn't have one. A couple more offers came our way, and we had a few more interviews, but our hearts kept going back to the position in Calgary, so we said They said no to those opportunities, even though they didn't even know if they had an opportunity in Calgary. By the beginning of April, we were starting to feel a little anxious about where we were going to end up. Graduation was upon us, and most of the positions in the MB conference had been spoken for. Nothing had resonated with us as much as the Calgary church plant. We continued praying and waiting on God to direct us, and at the end of April, uh, the church planning task force called us and asked if we could come for a visit next week. Willie was just completing assignments, so we postponed the visit for one more week and arrived in Calgary in the beginning of May 1994. Immediately after getting off the plane in Calgary, we looked at each other and said, we're home. They hired us, and we moved there in August 1994 with no home, two small children, a third on the way, and a dream to see God do more than we could ask or imagine. And so even this, Andrew Brown's story, was part of a dream within a dream. The Brown family being a part of our SunWest community. Our dreams predate us and our dreams post-date us. You know, I'm a part of that dream within a dream. Uh, 13 years ago, uh, I talked about a bit about the story last week, is I couldn't get an internship at a church and I was knocking on doors in Calgary and finally I got connected with Willie and Willie decided to take a risk on me. I didn't know anybody, didn't know anything about SunWest. 
and the first day I started was, um, was on our, pastor, our annual pastor's retreat where we went to Invermere. I was with my in-laws out in uh, Bearspaw area. And, uh, and Willie said, we're coming by in a Toyota Sienna. It's gold. Uh, we'll meet you at the intersection between uh, uh, 16th Avenue and Stony Trail there, I think is what it was. And, or Sarcy Trail? 16th Avenue set? Sarcy Stony. Sarcy Stony. Anyways, one of those up there. Uh, whatever it was. And so I remember getting, I getting dropped off at the lights at this intersection. And I got... I got a suitcase with me, and this gold van pulls up. I had no idea what was on the other side of those, those van doors. And, I, and, I, and I'm like, I think this is it. And nobody even got out of the vehicle. I, I don't remember. This is the sliding door opens, and I kind of sheepishly walk up to the van. And uh, Jeff Marshall's in there. Some of you, many of you know uh, Del Teeson, who some of you remember. Uh, Chad Bennett, who was a youth pastor at the time, and Dan Bergen, who was a worship pastor here for a long time. Anyways, these are and Willie. These were the characters that were waiting for me in the van. And uh, as a young 21-year-old kid, I just hop in the van, not knowing the ride that I was going on. Uh, and 13 years later, I find myself in this dream within a dream within a dream of a church that would see unchurched people meet the transforming person of Jesus Christ, a place where people would meet Jesus and walk in freedom, hope and healing. And that's the dream that's in my heart for our church. And that started 22 years ago. Now, if you noticed when, when Gwen f finished, uh, you know, when, what she wrote me here, she said, a dream to see God do more than we could ask or imagine. And that phrase comes from Ephesians 3.20. And it says, now all glory to God who is able, through his mighty work at work, at mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Isn't that what happened in the stories we've heard this morning? And I would, I would just like to ask you, is it possible that the Bible's telling the truth? Is it possible? I, I don't know. It, is it possible that, that it's true that God can do more than we could ask or imagine? That was the verse that was put on William Gwen's heart 22 years ago. The next verse, and we often don't get to this verse, but the next verse is this. I urge you now to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. And so I urge you, Sunwesters, whether you're here for the first time or whether you're here, you've been here for the last 22 years, to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received, to dream dreams, to ask God, what is the line that you don't want me to run from that you actually want me to chase? And I'm going to, I want to take a moment right now, and uh, as we conclude our service with this, um, and I'm going to invite you to take out your phones. If you got a phone, take out your phones. And instead of having a closing singing song today, I'm actually, we're actually going to do a listening prayer exercise. And I believe that God is here and he wants to speak to every single one of you. Uh, I believe that God has something that he's calling each and every one of you to do. A fear that he's calling each and every one of you to, take, to, to look at in the face and to overcome. I believe that you're one encounter away from a different life. Um... And so I'm just going to ask our sound guy to, to play a little bit of background music. I'm going to ask you a few questions. And with your phone out, and the reason I, uh, I don't have pen and paper, so this might be the easiest way. You might not have a phone. 
If you got a pen and paper, you can do it on pen and paper. I'm just going to ask you a few questions. And I want you to pray and ask God about these questions. And these might, you might not feel like you have an answer to them right away, uh, but maybe this is homework to take home and to pray about this week. And here's the questions I want to ask. God, what am I afraid of? Where, do I, where did I learn this fear? And how do I unlearn it? Because as we learned last week, faith is, is unlearning our fears. Because most of our fears are actually learned. What am I afraid of? Where did I learn this fear? And how do I unlearn it? God, what is the 500-pound lion that you want me to go after? And what perceived impossibilities do I need to repent of? Just take a few minutes and, and pray over those questions and see what the Lord might bring to mind. curiosity. How many, as, uh, as you take a brief moment here to reflect, uh, do, do you feel like you have a 500-pound line that comes to mind or maybe a fear that comes to mind? Just raise a hand. Okay, we've got a number. Awesome. I, I, I would encourage you to take these questions this week and to, to take 
time, and some of these take lots of time, um, and uh, more time than we have this morning, but to, to pray and ask God what you're afraid of and how do you unlearn those fears and what, what's the 500-pound line, Lord, that you're actually calling me to go after? Not getting caught up in the results of where this might go because you don't know the ripple effect that your dream is going to have. Elizabeth Bueller uh, was still at home with her parents uh, in 1917 during the Russian Revolution. And anarchy reigned for a number of years. Anarchists like Nestor Maknov gang terrorized the villages of South Russia. In one raid in 1919, the gang entered the the Peter and Helena Unger home. They lined the men on one side of the big living room and the women on the other. They threatened to shoot the men. They held them at gunpoint. In the midst of all the confusion, 20-year-old Elizabeth, or Lisa she was called, took her guitar, walked into the middle of the room and began to sing and play folk songs and worship hymns. The commandment was deeply touched and ordered his men to stop their marauding, to put down their weapons, and he ordered them onto their horses and ordered them out of the village. Elizabeth Bueller was my great-grandma. And my great-grandma, in a 500-pound lion situation, chose not to just to see the fear, but to step past the fear into worship. And I think I'm standing here today because she chose to do that. When we think individually and corporately about the lions that we have to face, uh, the only way that we can actually go after them is because we have the Lion of Judah behind us. And, and the only way we have the faith and the courage to go after them is actually taking a posture of worship. And to conclude this service this morning, I want to just invite you uh, to our deep stream service this Tuesday night at 6.30, uh, where there's going to be hardly any talking, so you're not going to hear me doing this, um, and a whole lot of worshiping and praying and seeking God for what he has for us as individuals, but also what he, what he has for us as a community. Because... We might not have guns pointing at us, but the weapons of fear, apathy, maintenance, mundane routine, criticism, and negativity are no less dangerous to the dreamer. So I invite us as a community in this season to worship, to ask God what he has for you, to ask him what he has for us. And then seek him for the courage to pursue the lions that he's calling us to chase. Won't you stand with me? By far the best choice you can make to have the greatest ripple effect in your life and to those around you is to give your life to Jesus. That is the best decision you will ever make. Uh, because Jesus is the one that transforms our lives. Jesus is the one that has the capacity to transform the world around you. And if you're someone this morning who has never taken the step to actually put your faith in Jesus, to put him first, to let him be Lord of your life, uh, I would invite you to do that today. You know, it doesn't matter what other decisions that might be before you, what other lines might be before you, this is the most important decision you'll ever make. 
And if you would like to do that today, I'd love to pray with you. And I'll be available at the end of the service. Come, come and chat with me. I would love to pray with you and so you can start this relationship with Jesus. Many of you know and have walked with Jesus this morning. And I would urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Not just to be a responder to circumstances, but to dictate circumstances because you're a dreamer. There's things that have happened to you that you can't control, but you can control how you respond to them. You might not be responsible, but you're response able. And there's certain things that God's calling you to actually make happen. So I pray that over these next days and weeks, uh, that God in his spirit would inspire you, that he would give you dreams, and that he would give you the courage to go after them. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that you've gathered us together, and we don't believe in coincidence, Lord. We believe that you've brought us together for a purpose. Lord, I thank you for the ripple effects of the dreams that predate us. Lord, the reason we're sitting here in this room together is because other people dreamed, because other people followed your leading. Lord, the reason we get to celebrate stories of life transformation is because because you were leading other people and those people had the courage to follow you. And Lord, we don't believe that this is the end of the story. In fact, we believe this is the beginning of the story and that you're going to do more than we ask or imagine. And so Lord, I pray that you would rise up in us a holy imagination. Lord, a discontent for the way we are, the way things are, and that you would light a fire in our gut uh, to see our lives transformed and to see the world transformed around us. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't look around waiting for someone else to do it, uh, but Lord, that you would, that we would feel your eyes on us. Uh, we hear your voice asking us to face those lines in our lives that are before us. And Lord, we, coming back to that, uh, that dream 22 years ago, we pray, God, that we would see unchurched people meet the transforming power of Jesus. Lord, we pray that this would be a place where People walk in freedom, hope, and healing. We pray to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for coming. We'll see you next week as we continue this series.